Chapter 4 of The Call of the Wildflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele Pooley. The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt. Likenesses that baffle. Stay, stand apart, I know not which is which. The Comedy of Errors One of the first difficulties by which those who would learn their native flora are beset is the likeness which in some cases exists between one plant and another. Not the close resemblance of kindred species, such as that found, for instance, among the brambles or the hawkweeds, which is necessarily a matter for expert discrimination, but the superficial yet often puzzling similarity in what botanists call the habit of wildflowers. Thus, the horseshoe vetch may easily be mistaken by a beginner for the bird's foot trefoil, or the field mouse ear chickweed for the greater stitchwort, and the differences between the dove's foot crane's bill and the less common geranium persillum are not at first sight very apparent. Distinguishing features instantly recognised by an expert, who has taken, so to speak, fingertip impressions of the plants, do not readily present themselves to the layman, whose only guide is a general testimony of structure, colour and height. It is moreover unfortunate that some of the popular flower books owing to the slovenly way in which their descriptions are worded, are of little help. They not only fail to give the needed particulars where there is a real likeness, but often, where there is none, create confusion in the reader's mind by depicting quite dissimilar plants in almost identical terms. In John's Flowers of the Field, edition of 1908, for example, the description of hedge woundwort hardly differs verbally from that of the black whorehound, and might certainly mislead a novice who was studying hedgerow flowers. The same writer had an exasperating habit of repeatedly stating that various plants are well distinguished by certain features, when in fact it is very difficult, from the accounts given by him, to distinguish them at all. An earlier and better writer, Anne Pratt, did make an effort in her haunts of the wild flowers to indicate the chief characteristics, as between the sea plantain and the sea arrowgrass, the hemp agrimony and the valerian. But even she, when some of the labiate flowers were in question, dismissed them, not very helpfully, as all growing in abundance, but so much alike that it needs a knowledge of botany to distinguish them from each other. I have known a case where, owing to a picturesque but inaccurate account in the same book, the Welsh stonecrop, Sedum forsterianum, was confused with the Marsh St John's wort, which has leaves that bear a curious resemblance to those of the Sedum tribe. Even writers of botanical handbooks 
seem not to realise with what difficulties the uninitiated are faced in regard to certain groups of plants where the several species, though quite distinct, bear a strong family likeness. The chamomiles, for instance, might well receive some special treatment in books, for it is no simple matter to assign their proper names to some four or five of the clan. The true chamomile, the wild chamomile, the corn chamomile, the stinking chamomile, and the scentless mayweed, which is not scentless. Many of the umbilifers also are notoriously difficult to identify, and among leguminous plants there is a bewildering similarity between black medic or nonsuch and the lesser clover, trifolium minus, which in turn is liable to be confused with the popular hop clover or with the slender and fairy-like trifolium filiform. Small examples of trifolium minus, said a well-known botanist, Mr. H. C. Watson, are so frequently misnamed trifolium filiform that I trust only my own eyes for it. As like as two peas is a saying which finds fulfilment in these and other examples. The clovers are indeed a perplexing family, and it is not surprising that the identification of the shamrock has given cause for dispute. Two of the smaller trefoils, for example, Trifolium scabrum and striatum, so closely resemble each other that a novice fails to appreciate the assurance given in the flora of Kent that they can very easily be separated. It is doubtless easy to separate one twin from another twin, Dromeo of Ephesius from Dromeo of Syracuse, when once you know how to do so. But until you have acquired that knowledge, there is material for a comedy of errors. The majority of folk are much more apt to confuse plants than to distinguish them. Witness such names as fool's parsley and fool's watercress. Fools they are. Yet anyone who has spent time in studying wildflowers with no better aid than that of the popular books on the subject will hesitate to pass judgment on such folly. For as so good an observer as Richard Jeffrey said, if you really wish to identify with certainty and have no botanist friend and no magnum opus of Sowerby to refer to, it is very difficult indeed to be quite sure. We have to be thankful for small mercies in this matter, and it may be recognised that in some cases, generally where the similarity is not great, as that between the strawberry-leaved cinquefoy and the wild strawberry, or between the feverfew and the scentless mayweed, the books occasionally give a word of advice to the young botanist. Nine times out of ten, however, that young fellow, or perchance old fellow, for one may be young as a botanist, while by no means young in years, must shift for himself, and doing so, he will gradually learn by experience what a number of likenesses there are among plants, and how many mistakes may be made before sure acquaintance is arrived at. The name of mockers is sometimes given by gardeners to weeds that are so like certain valued plants 
as to be easily mistaken for them. And in the same way, in the search for wildflowers, one's attention is often distracted, as, for instance, if one is looking for the spineless meadow thistle, the eye may be baffled by innumerable knapweed blossoms of the same hue. The clustered bellflower will feign to the autumnal gentian, its neighbour on the chalk downs, or the blossoms and leaves of the purple saxifrage on the high mountains are aped by the ubiquitous wild thyme. Of all these likenesses, the most perilous is that between the malodorous ramsons, which have a very abiding smell of garlic, and the highly esteemed lily of the valley. Hence a story which I once heard from the affable keeper who presides over a wooded hill in Westmoreland where the lily of the valley abounds, and where visitors are permitted to pick as many flowers as they like after payment of a shilling. Seeing a gentleman busily engaged in gathering a large bunch of ramsons, the keeper, suspecting error, asked him what he supposed himself to be picking. Why, lilies of the valley, of course, was the reply. When the truth was explained, the visitor thanked the keeper cordially and added, I was picking the flowers for my wife, but if I had brought her a present of garlic, she would have had something to say to me. I myself have lost the sense of smell. Likeness or unlikeness, it is all a matter of observation. To a stranger, every sheep in the flock has a face like that of her fellows. To the shepherd, there are no two sheep alike. End of chapter 4